Welcome to the Radio Times podcast. This is Jane Garvey and the TV critic Rihanna Dillon is here as well. Hi, Rihanna. Hi. This is the place where we gently percolate uh, some of the best telly around and suggest that you might want to give it a watch. But we'll also always warn you if we've got doubts about something. Oh, yes, we will. No, we will, because that's our duty. Uh, So what are we talking about this week, Rihanna? Well, we've got The Tower on ITV, The Wheel of Time on Amazon, Empire State of Mind on Channel 4 and The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV. Empire State of Mind is two documentaries going to be shown on Channel 4 and they are put together by the journalist and broadcaster Satnam Sanghera. And I've been talking to him and here's just a a short clip from that conversation. I realise now that the way our community, the Sikh community in Wolverhampton, was treated in the 60s and 70s was an echo of empire in that we weren't allowed to buy houses in the posh areas, you know, in the way in empire, brown and white people lived in separate areas. There were colour bars. I mean, working men's clubs in Wolverhampton had a colour bar until 1984. And you can hear much more from Satnam and we'll talk too about Empire State of Mind later in this podcast. So any excitement this week? I mean, you're always, you and your ruddy wedding. (laughs) No, don't be cross now (laughs) this week. Have you made some progress? I interviewed Lady Gaga. What? (laughs) Never mind your wedding. You interviewed Lady Gaga. Yes. What about? Um, about her new film, House of Gucci. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, kind of taking the fashion world by storm. It's a new Ridley Scott film. There are so many famous faces in it, including Adam Driver, Jared Leto, if you can find him underneath all of his prosthetics. and Who does he play? He plays Paolo Gucci, who is sort of like the joke cousin, but he doesn't realise he's a joke. Um, so, yeah, you know, really incredibly glamorous, stylish film all about the death of Maurizio Gucci and the person who instigated that, which was his ex-wife. Oh dear. Um, Right, so that must have put you in a really good mood to plan your wedding. We do have uh, an important matter to discuss this week, actually, because I think you said, perhaps we both agreed, that it wasn't possible to hide behind a sofa. Uh, This had been in a conversation about Doctor Who. and um, I really love how the most innocuous things get picked up. But I really, I'm so glad, because I think we did ask people to write in and someone actually has, which I think is very, very important. Podcast at radiotimes.com. Marion emailed to say, the following. Dear Jane and Rihanna, I was a young child when Doctor Who started in the 60s and it was possible to hide behind the sofa. (laughs) We used to pull the sofa and the armchairs close to the coal fire in the front room. I think that's actually really important. If the sofa had been up against the wall, we'd have been too far away from the heat source as we did not have central heating. I recall hiding behind the settee, as it was called in those days, if anything even a bit scary came on the television. I'm enjoying your podcast and I listen in conjunction with reading the article in the Radio Times. Now, I think we're going to call Marion on message, Marion. That's absolutely excellent. Thank you. She says she's a lifelong Radio Times reader. Oh, so, fabulous. Well, Marion, it's great to have you on board with us in the podcast as well, because you can, as you indeed are doing, you can enjoy both, can't you? We are on Twitter and Facebook and Insta at Radio Times. And you can be like Marion and email podcast at radiotimes.com. Let's plunge in then to some of the headier offerings that are available for all of us over the coming weeks. And Apple TV must have chucked a lot of money at The Shrink Next Door, which stars Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd. And here's a clip. You're a good man, Marty. I'm fairly busy, but I like you. And I think I could help you. Okay. You let people use you. I'm not going to let anyone use you. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Sound good? Yeah. 
That sounds good. I'm gonna help you. And everything's gonna be all right. Okay, the shrink is Paul Rudd. Will Ferrell is the um is the guy who's troubled. Yes, I think it's fair to say that Marty is anxiety-ridden and um, Paul Rudd is this is a very kind of charming, affable doctor, Dr Ike, who kind of worms and inveigles his way into Marty's too life. Slick for my he liking. very much is. And uh, it's based on a podcast, this, rather than a book or anything else, and which the podcast itself was based on a real-life relationship. So... I kind of love that it's, it was kind of only a matter of time, really. We've had um, The Farewell was a film that was based on a podcast of a true life event, um, a film starring Aquafina, and now The Shrink Next Door. So I'm kind of enjoying the fact that podcasts are now becoming a source. Catherine Hahn is also in this as Marty's sister, and she's just always the most impressive person in every single scene. I'm glad you mentioned her. She does. She's another one. A little like my slightly haphazard attempt to describe why I like Kristen Stewart and Spencer. I couldn't take my eyes off her in this. She, for me, was the one. I almost want the show to be about well, her. Well, yes. That's the trouble with Catherine Hahn is that she outacts every other person on the screen. And she, it's quite rare that she gets leading roles. Um, she plays Agatha in um, WandaVision and everyone was just going mad for her performance and everyone wants an Agatha spin-off. And uh, in, it's just her comic timings and how good she is at pathos as well, especially in this. She's got a cracking perm, which I have always wanted a perm. Well, Always. I've had one, and uh, a little like that. Was it a success? Well, I got curly hair to start with, so <laughs> with a perm on top, you can imagine. Photographs are available, but you need to part with hard cash. Um, I think the fact that this has got so many huge comedy names in it, like Catherine Hahn, like Paul Rudd, Will Ferrell, who are, we used to seeing be quite wacky and outlandish in films yeah. like Anchorman, and it's quite a surprise to see them in quite a sensitively realised drama. And yet, for me, it did kind of work, because it does trend that edge of being it's kind of appeals to our British nature I think of dark comedy I think that's one of as a nation I think that's one of our favourite genres Just give me an idea though of what unfolds here because I've seen one episode and it appears that Marty's going to be helped by Paul Rudd's shrink Yes But does it become a bit more toxic? It does because you start to realise that perhaps the psychiatrist isn't just out for Marty's best interests. He sees him as a bit of a cash cow and Marty thinks that this man is helping him and actually is going to be a much needed friend. He's so not used to standing up for himself and in this, the way that Dr Ike is trying to help him do that, he isolates him from everyone in his family. You see that especially in episode two with his sister and you start to realise just how insidious and toxic, as you said, this relationship is going to get. Recommended? I really enjoyed it. And I think it was a really, quite an easy, it's not a bleak, it's not a difficult watch. It's an intriguing watch. And in the same way that with a podcast, you want to keep listening, you want to find out what happens next, the cliffhangers at the end. Can we just discuss, it's not the elephant in the room, but agelessness and Paul Rudd. He's just one 2021 sexiest uh, man. Uh, and right? he's on the cover of, is it People Mag? Yeah. I mean, he looks about 30. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. He's 52. 52. Incredible. And this is the guy who was in Friends as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was always the best looking Mike. one in Friends yeah, by was. some margin. You just think, oh, don't mess with the other, just go with Mike. It's intelligent is what this is, actually. It is. And I think a lot of people will really enjoy it. The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV and it's available now. Now, ITV Drama, this is now available on the ITV Hub. It's The Tower. Um, here's a quick clip. What happened, Jesse? All I've got so far... 
is the girl grabbed the boy from his home, took him to the top of the tower, two cops got the call, tried to stop her doing whatever she was going to do. The result? The girl fell to her death. So did one of the cops. Okay. Put Jez on CCTV, you take the door to door, grab any phone footage you can before it's all over the internet, plus any BWV footage and the phones of the officers. Who's our family liaison? Alice Parker. Ask her to meet me here. I'll talk to the CSM, then head to the local next follow, isn't it? Seal lockers, grab a spare office. We need statements, especially that female PC. If she was up there, she saw. Yeah, I mean, I'm no detective, but I too would have taken a statement from that female PC who was on the... <laughs> on the roof of the tower. Yeah. What do we think of this? Well, I mean, but we should say, by the way, a, a welcome appearance of a Mac that's worn in a very committed fashion by the, by the lead actress throughout <laughs> every episode of The Tower. The orange Mac. The orange yes. Mac. It's a little bit like Hayley from Coronation Street. Do you remember her, Mac? No. OK, similar. Go on. It's a very kind of dour programme, Ooh. isn't it? And you yeah. can hear there. So Gemma Whelan, I, know, I rate really highly. I think she's brilliant. And I again, she's another actress that has great comic timing and doesn't get put in comedies enough um, you might know her from like Upstart Crow she was Yara in Game of Thrones and in this she is playing this policewoman whose tone does not change from what, that clip that you heard no, there that's it that's it the whole way through and it's clearly how she's been directed and I am a little bit bored of seeing these female cops always being portrayed in the same way you know there's they get asked do you have children no I didn't think so I was like sorry how many crime dramas have we seen that line in now to date I would love some research She's also. How many times uh, we get I mean, there was that. a time when you never saw a lesbian in any kind of drama. This character is gay, and we're told she's gay. Why can't she be happy? She's I, single. Well, you see, there she's you go. single and childless, That's and what, so it's clearly very, very miserable. And oh, I'm sick of that too. I, it's just it is depressing, it's, and it makes no sense. Why can't we have somebody who is really kind of full of verve and enjoys their job, who and, may or may not be straight? Yeah. Why? Why make such? I don't know. It gets on my nerves. It's becoming a real cliche that too. It's it. The fact that they're always miserable. And it makes no sense to the story. It never furthers the plot. No. Um, we never find out anything about really her relationship, apart from the fact that her partner has gone on to have a child and she hasn't. And that's supposed to make her go around in a Mac looking despondent. I mean, anyway, the other dead person that we hear about in that clip is a girl from Libya who has just come over from with her father. So there are racist undertones in how her family have been treated by police and neighbours. And that just never gets explored properly, except kind of as a reason why a police officer might lose their job because they may or may not have said something racist rather than exploring the innate corruption and reasons behind racism in, in an institution like the police force. And it's based on a novel called Postmortem by a writer called Kate London. Kate London, who is an ex-copper. Is she? OK. Well, Which I mean, explains a lot, I it, think. Yeah, I mean, there, there probably is... Uh, I, I wish, in a way, this was a better televisual version of what was probably a very good book about mm -hmm. what real life is like in, in the Met Metropolitan Police. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it felt to me like a bit of a missed opportunity, but then, like you, I watched the lot, so uh, we can't... <laughs> it got us, it got us. It, it did get us in the end. So <laughs> The Tower, all three episodes are available now on the ITV Hub. I, I do have a bit of a reputation of maybe being a bit snobby about ITV dramas. I don't think they're always executed brilliantly. Um, uh, really interestingly, in our house, where, you know, my kids are 21 and 18, show trial has been massive. Now, this is on BBC iPlayer, uh, and obviously it's being shown as well on Sunday nights at nine o'clock mm -hmm. at the moment. And it has, interestingly, my 21-year-old, I don't think she has watched a BBC drama since Tracy Beaker, and oh, I mean wow. it. Oh, brilliant. And she has actually said to me, does the BBC make a lot of drama? <laughs> 
no, Jane. Being, but this, what? But this would, and I know. You're like one of the face of, you well, used to be the face of the BBC. I wish. <laughs> I think the BBC drama department would be heartbroken, frankly, that 21-year-old, yes. uh, relatively intelligent people are asking these questions. And I just think they need to make more telly to appeal and more drama to appeal to that generation. If you make a show about them, mm-hmm. then maybe they they'll come. watch. They will, they will come. <laughs> anyway, show trial, I've seen all of it. I know you haven't. I just want you to finish it, I will, it, please. Oh, I absolutely will. And also, anyone out there, tell us your takes on latest crime dramas because, as we said, there are a lot of them. How do you sort through the wheat from the chaff? Yeah. Email us, podcast at radiotimes.com. Let's move on then to two really interesting documentaries on Channel 4, uh, starting at 9 o'clock on Saturday the 20th of November. They are called Empire State of Mind and they're presented by the writer and broadcaster Satnam Sanghera. Now, essentially, um, Satnam makes the powerful case for Britain's colonial history being largely responsible for some of the racist thinking still prevalent in 21st century Britain. And I should say that our conversation does contain language that a lot of people would find both offensive and upsetting. The programmes themselves are really well worth watching. You'll hear my interview with Satnam after this clip from the first of the two documentaries. Here he is talking to a man called Bill Etheridge, a former member of the European Parliament, actually, and now an advisor to UKIP. I I did a search for you on Twitter this morning, because I'm a journalist, and uh, there's so many messages from people saying, Bill Etheridge is a racist. Probably hundreds of thousands of them. Probably. So what do you think about that? I mean, I think they're wrong, and I think they haven't met me. Among the material I found on Bill was a photograph of him with the white pen dragons. It's a far-right group whose members define themselves as Brexiteers, Islamophobes, white supremacists and imperialists. One of his leaders calls Enoch Powell their patron and inspiration. You will have imagined that you would get slagged off for making this show these yes, shows dreading it to be honest well okay and in the same way as you got slagged off for writing writing empire land very successful uh but you should we shouldn't live in a world where you're worried should we which is guess is why that you have to make these programs yeah um i think it's because when you're talking about british empire you're talking about race you're talking about white people conquering brown people in general and so it, it becomes a proxy argument about race, which is the most toxic conversation to have anyway in the West. So, and because I'm brown, that I think is a reversal of the hierarchy of empire. And until now, most imperial stories have been told by white men of a certain age, wearing red trousers, getting off trains on BBC Two at six thirty. Uh, enough about Michael. <laughs> when suddenly you got David Olusoga, you got me. It really challenges people's sense of Britishness, I think. And so it quickly becomes very angry. Who? Who gets angry and why? I think, I mean, actually for the programme, I met Philippa Perry, the therapist. Yeah. And she had a very good theory. She said uh, people get angry because you're challenging their idea of themselves. Often people have got family who are either the colonisers or the colonised. So it gets very personal and very emotional very quickly. What about what we learn in school, or, in my case, what I didn't learn, or was never taught? Yeah, I mean, I was taught almost nothing about empire. I thought things had got better, but for the programme, I went back to my old school and asked the kids what they'd learned about empire, 
and it was still nothing. They've been talked about slavery, which I've been talked about, but they said, oh, slavery was an American phenomenon. And it, crucially, of course, the British were the people who... Abolished slavery. Got rid of it, absolutely, which we all feel proud of. Um, but, but also we dominated the trade for and then there's large that. periods. Yeah, so, OK, let, let's go back. You say you went back to your old school. You grew up in Wolverhampton. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I guess I've... I mean, I grew up in a typically immigrant area, you know, as a bit of a ghetto in the 70s and 80s. Sikhs, upwardly mobile, have become a very successful community. But I realise now that the way our community, the Sikh community in Wolverhampton, was treated in the 60s and 70s was an echo of empire, in that we weren't allowed to buy houses in the posh areas, you know, in the way in empire, brown and white people lived in separate areas. There were colour bars. I mean, working men's clubs in Wolverhampton had a colour bar until 1984, some of them. Wow. Also, you know, we were accused of not integrating, not speaking the language. We weren't allowed to do certain jobs, which is exactly what happened in India as well. And then there was the racist violence, again, an echo of empire, you know, packy bashing, um, which we've heard quite a lot of because of the Yorkshire Cricket Club story. It was a sport you know, in the 70s and 80s. And actually, I think there's a bit of footage in the programme of a kid just talking about packy bashing being something he did on a Friday night in the way you'd talk about going to the Ministry of Sound or something. Uh, at school, what happened to you, um, if, if anything, in terms of bullying and in terms of the way other people spoke to you or treated you? I guess my I went to a, a, a grammar school. I, the government paid my fees. I was the first person in my family to go to university and that school... Um, I had a top knot when I joined that school. I didn't when I left. I went from being a very shy kid to being quite a cocky kid who, you know, going to Cambridge and was head boy. But looking back on it, it was a very white imperial education in the sense that I didn't study a single brown author during my entire schooling. So I even saw India through the prism of Western books even though I was Indian. So you might have read A Passage to India, for example. Didn't even get that. Someone, a teacher gave me Paul Scott's trilogy on India. I started it and didn't finish it. And that was my only encounter with the subcontinent. I was in my final term at university before I read my first brown author. And so when people talk about decolonizing the curriculum, I think it's a terrible phrase. I think it puts people's backs up. But what it means is widening the curriculum for me. It means that you do study some brown authors. It means that you talk about the Tudors, but you mention the fact there were black people around in Elizabeth the first time. It means that, you know, when you talk about World War One and World War Two, you talk about the six million troops from empire who fought for the British Empire, you know, the 83,000 Sikhs who died. So to the people who, who still say, and some of them have got, well, they are in very high offices mm. uh, in Britain, even as we speak, who will always make the case for the British Empire and say things like, uh, we built the roads, we made the railways, we sorted out irrigation. Uh, there are plenty of people, intelligent people, um, some would say. Yeah, Boris Johnson. You mentioned that name. I, I didn't. Um, who still say these things? Now, yeah. what, what is your view of them? Well, my view is not necessarily of them, but I think they're typical of the way we've always seen empire as this balance sheet of good versus evil. So we say, oh, there were a few massacres and a genocide in Tasmania, but we built the, built the Indian railways and we did X and X. And I think that is... a. Uh, immoral way of looking at empire and also illiterate because you it's 500 years of complex history how can you weigh the murder of 300 people against some railways it's really inane way of looking at 
complex history. I mean, history is not like a, a restaurant you're reviewing on Google. You know, we should seek to understand it rather than saying it was bad or good. You know, and it shouldn't be about your feelings. Do you get people who would say to you, with your uh, your fantastic achievements as a, as an author uh, and a journalist, and your Cambridge education and the state paying for you to go to grammar school as well, uh, do people still say to you, "Why are you knocking? Why are you knocking the country that has given you so much? How could you?" Yeah, and I get that all the time, and I tackle this in my book, Empire Land. In that, yes, I am grateful for the NHS, for my free education, for living in London, for working on the Times. But you know, I am British. When people say you should be more grateful, the accusation is you would have had a worse life in India. I would have done, except I wasn't born in India. I am British. <laughs> so why aren't you saying this to my white colleagues, Matthew Paris, who is actually, I think, from Africa? <laughs> is but, <it>? Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't get that because he's white. It's not assumed that. You know, he has to demonstrate his gratitude. And you go to uh, Wolves, to, to the... Is it still the Molyneux? I can't remember. It the, is the Molyneux, well-remembered. Uh, yeah, yeah, and of course their ground has a link. There's a family, isn't there? The, what was yeah. their connection? Yeah, the Molyneux family had a slave right. in Wolverhampton. Mm. And this is another one of the myths. We often think slavery didn't happen in Britain. But if you go back to, in, to the newspapers of the time, there were loads of adverts from the owners of slaves in Britain um, trying to locate their runaway slaves, which pretty much gives away the fact that we had slaves. But there was one in Wolverhampton. And also that they were keen to run away. Um, exactly. So, says something, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So um, you go to a game and you take your brother, who I, I don't think is a football fan. No, and it was the first match I'd been to because of COVID in a long time. And, you know, it, the Wolverhampton Wanderers have got a terrible racist history you know the fans were known for wearing kkk hoods in the 70s and 80s and my my mum wouldn't allow us out of the house but now it's got a hugely racially diverse fan base um i'm a fan and i wanted to kind of convert my brother but then you know first of all there was a booing when the players to the knee but rio ferdinand was there commentating on the match and got monkey chance and yeah the fanning question was has been banned i think for life but still that racism, which I argue comes from empire, the way we see black people as inferior to white people, is still around, depressingly. Your programme goes out nine o'clock, Channel 4, Saturday night. Are you stealing yourself for a Twitter <laughs> storm of, of abuse? Yeah, I mean, I've had loads of racist abuse, handwritten, signed letters, death threats sometimes. And uh, it's because when you talk about empire, you're talking about race and... I guess I am talking about how modern racism was shaped by empire, you know, how the British decided they were a super race in the late 19th century. And those ideas still persist amongst some people today. You know how it works. There's lots of good things. People say positive things, but the negative things stay in your head. So I'm just staying off Twitter which is probably the answer to life in general, isn't it? That is the author and broadcaster Satnam Sangera, who is the host of Empire State of Mind, two documentaries, the first of which is shown on Channel 4 at 9 o'clock this Saturday, the 20th of November. Now, I'm a white woman, so I can watch those programmes and I can listen to that interview and indeed do that interview in a particular way. But it's different, Rihanna, if you're not, if you're not white. Yeah, that, that was very um, close to home. Yeah. 
just explain a little bit about why it is so I know you're really and rightly emotional about it but go on yeah sorry I don't I don't I think I've only ever cried once during a review and that was a for Sammer um which was a quite awful documentary and this is only the second time in my whole career that something's got me that much that I'm still upset about it having seen it you know however long ago but so my dad is Punjabi you know had a similar upbringing I suppose not not in terms of class necessarily or area my dad grew up in um Wimbledon I think he sounds like he maybe had a slightly more affluent lifestyle and I don't think was targeted in the, the quite the same way yeah um as Satnam talks about. But what felt really close to home for me was when he goes down to Brighton. That's where I'm from. And my dad actually runs the annual Chattery Memorial Service for Indian soldiers who died in World War One. And in the programme, if you watch it, you will see Satnam going to this memorial talking about the Chattery. It's something that's become a part of our lives very closely for the past 20 years. I, I think I know a lot about the Indian soldiers in Brighton and their story and the fact that the pavilion was used as a hospital for these soldiers, the fact that actually Brighton was very welcoming to them and um, they were almost kind of shown off around, they were kind of wheeled around by white nurses. Queen Victoria came down to see them, was quite enamoured with it. You know, she kind of had a bit of a thing for Indian men, I think. So we kind of hear, I've heard all of these stories for a really long time. In the programme, Satnam sort of, uncovers another side to Brighton. There's another hospital called yeah. the Kitchener Hospital. It doesn't exist there anymore. It's a different, you know, doesn't have that. It's not called that anymore. But you hear this other side of the fact that actually in Brighton, there were Indian soldiers who were just thrown in cells while they were supposed to be recuperating. They weren't allowed to be touched by white women. Um, they were treated horrendously and in incredibly racist ways. And that was this whole side of this history that I thought I knew, and I didn't. And so that that was a real shock. Hearing him also talking about the death threats that he receives, the daily racism, the fact that he can't be on Twitter because he just knows that he's going to be annihilated by people. I mean, you made the point that they might not even watch the programme. Just... Well, I, I said to you, will people who are racist idiots be watching Channel 4 on a Saturday night? But that won't stop them pitching in to no. a battle on social media. Exactly. Because they are idiots. And it, I suppose I was thinking about that echo chamber as well of, so is it just going to be people like us watching this and thinking, oh god how awful we aren't necessarily the people that this needs to be targeted towards but the people that it needs to be targeted towards who feature in the in the documentary i was amazed at how many people were quite happy and comfortable airing their racist views on national television in conversation with well, Satnam. I mean, that in itself is terrifying isn't it uh, but also the reason this program has the reason these programs have to be made is that Satnam is so worried about the reaction to those yes. programs now whilst we still live in this reality We've got to start. Someone's got to have the courage to start these important conversations, mm -hmm. and to, and for those of us who who have grown up with a version of Britain in our heads, yeah. and a version of Britain's history in our heads, we've got to start reassessing things yeah, and reckoning. Really interesting programs, and they will start a conversation, and they deserve to. And I hope people do before they say anything, actually watch them, yes. maybe, uh, with an open mind. Satnam was a great presenter, actually. I really He's enjoyed watching. He's got a very easy manner. He really he? has, yeah. yeah. He knows how to speak to people. Yeah, people do open up. Yeah. Um, it doesn't always serve them particularly well no. when they open up to him, but uh, they do. <laughs> so Empire State of Mind starts Channel 4 this Saturday at 9 o'clock. That's the 20th of November.
Okay, now the Wheel of Time is a blockbuster series on Amazon Prime. Jeff Bezos has ordered his own version of Game of Thrones. That's kind of how it seems. It stars all sorts of folk. I, I read it initially as Marcus Rashford, but it's not. It's Marcus Rutherford <laughs> and Rosamund Pike, amongst others. And here is a clip. I didn't choose this path, but I will follow it. Where next? The two rivers. The old blood runs deep in those mountains. Let's hope it's prepared them for what's coming. The Dark One is waking. It's a fantasy epic about a magical being. And I'm I'm not sure if the word witch exists in this world, but Rosamund Pike is a witch or a magical being who is looking for a 20-year-old boy who may be the reincarnation of the dragon, which could be this world's saviour or downfall. So she's she's kind of like Herod mixed with Dumbledore, is how I saw her. Herodor. Exactly. It's kind of like a parody, almost, of a fantasy epic. Well, it is. It's got everything. <laughs> it, it ticks a lot of boxes. Claps of thunder, bolts of lightning. Yeah, there's a lot of exposition um, because I think they have a lot to get through in episode one. So they're sort of doing this thing where they tell and don't show. And actually, considering, you know, how many parts this is going to be, I could have maybe... How many parts is it going to be? It's eight episodes. And I, I, when people are telling me what the plot is, I, that's when I completely zone out. Do you know what I mean? You need to see it. You need to understand it. Yeah. Um, you need to care. You need to care. And that doesn't happen with just a, a couple of lines of exposition. I didn't. It didn't get me. I think this feels like a sort of more YA version of something like, I don't know. I mean, people are talking about it being Game of Thrones. I don't really, I don't, it looks Game of Thronesy in the fact that it has got fabulous landscapes. You know, when you have this over blue river and these really misty mountains and that I really enjoyed. And actually they have some great battle sequences in the very in the very first episode. So it looks incredible. I have no idea what was happening or why it was happening. No, and that's you do sort of vaguely have to know why certain things yeah. are happening and why they they might be significant. <laughs> um, Rosamund Pike is I think she's quite an unusual choice for this. Mm. And and she's a great actress and she delivers her lines with, I mean, you need to, you know, she's like this and I, what was it? I didn't choose the path, but I will follow it. Mm. Um, what that means, I've no idea. You said to me, I don't think even she knows. But I'm not entirely <laughs> certain that she does. And you have to, I mean, is this going to be a, a hit on the, on the scale of Game of Thrones? No, I don't think it will. I don't, because I, I think this has got a much smaller fan base for a start. I don't, I've never really heard anyone talk about The Wheel of Time. No, but there's enough books. They've got 14 books to chomp on here They've if they choose to. for 30 years, these books. So this is, it's got quite a long history. So perhaps I'm completely wrong. Again, it's not a world that I know of, but I just, I think also because it's on a streaming platform, I'm not sure if people will necessarily go for that in the same way that it, when it's just on TV. Well, um, it's available and you may well love every special moment. The Wheel of Time, season one, 
eight episodes you can absolutely devour and it's available on Amazon Prime from Friday the 19th of November. The Beatles are the cover stars on this week's Radio Times. That's because The Beatles Get Back is released in three parts. This is a monster epic thing on Disney Plus between the 25th and the 27th of November. Now, David Hepworth writes with great authority on podcasts in the Radio Times. He's also someone who knows everything there is to know about music. Now, he has been speaking to the director of this Beatles magnum opus, that's Peter Jackson, and he has been allowed, that's David, to see some, but not all, of this series, which, to say the least, has been incredibly closely guarded. I mean, we've all heard of the Beatles and we know they made music. Who? Yep, no, the Beatles. Um, so I talked to David and asked him about the secrecy surrounding Get Back and whether all this fuss was really going to be worth it. It's extraordinary, isn't it, ramping up the excitement over something that's over 50 years old. And, of course, there are still there are still people wandering around, myself included, who actually remember seeing the original film, Let It Be, when it came out in 1970. So our excitement is not quite the same. The surprising thing is just seeing the Beatles in glowing colour, kind of at the peak of their powers, pretty much. They're looking entirely contemporary. You know, in many respects, this just appears to be taking place now. And it's only when you refer to the amount of kind of smoking that's going on in the background and 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 the kind of air pollution over London that you realise, no, this was actually 50 years ago. Because the Beatles, you know, caught at that moment seemed to defy the passage of time entirely. You know, they kind of looked like... Oasis or, or somebody far more recent than Oasis. You know, they, they sort of make everybody else look slightly dated because they are they are classic. They're just sort of above it all. How, how does this then differ from Let It Be, the film that you've already seen? And in fact, I think I've seen it too. It's far longer. This is you know, three, three films is what you're seeing here. You're seeing the entirety of what they did in January 1969. You know, they played a lot of stuff and they developed a lot of stuff and they decided they were going to do a concert, but that concert would be on the roof of the Apple building in Savile Row rather than in front of paying customers. And so Let It Be, the original film, which came out in 1970, went down in history as the Beatles' last word. You know, this is the Beatles' breakup movie. Whereas it was nothing of the kind, because actually they went on to do Abbey Road after the after the events of Let It Be. And Peter Jackson, who I taught her, was very interesting on this. He says that uh, because they started it as a television film and then changed their mind halfway through and decided to make it a cinema film, they blew up the 16 mil footage to 35 mil, which resulted in it being very grainy and slightly grubby looking when people saw it at the cinema in 1970. And so it doesn't look anything like that now. You know, it's gone through a similar process that he put in First World War footage of in, in They Shall Not Grow Old uh, through. And so it appears very vibrant and, and pin sharp and fabulous colour. And as I say, entirely now. We should also say, I was really shocked to read that McCartney at this time was only in his mid-twenties. He wasn't some wizened old giffer. Ringo and John were 28 
Paul, I think it was, was he 26 or 25? I can't remember. George is one year younger. And so I worked out that they are younger in that film and they've already seen the world, conquered the world, done absolutely everything there is to do, become more famous than anybody post-Charlie Chaplin, and yet they are younger than contemporary England football team. It's also interesting, isn't it, that Peter Jackson has chosen this as his project after that incredible work he did with the, with the World War One archive. It's a measure, really, of just how important this band were that he considers all this worthy of his attention. He said, I happen to be fascinated by First World War history and the Imperial War Museum uh, invited me to, to put together They Shall Not Grow Old. And I happen to be obsessed with the Beatles. And Apple Corps approached me to do this. He's just incredibly lucky. He says, this footage has been hiding away in a vault for 50 years. The danger is if I don't do something with it now, it'll go away in another vault for another 50 years. I think he feels he's incredibly fortunate to have done the two that he's done. What did you learn, genuinely fresh to you, about the individuals involved, if anything? We all know that later in the year they did Abbey Road and Abbey Road finishes with a song called The End and the picture on the cover has them walking away from their place of work (laughs) on their last day. So it's quite clear that was the end. They didn't know it was at all. They probably felt that their lives were moving into a, in a new direction. You know, so you see Yoko's there, you see Linda's there. You know, there are different things that are going on in the lives of the individuals. But they're still thinking, no, we, we can carry on. We can have solo careers and we'll somehow keep coming back together to be the Beatles. But what you realise, and what Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son, who was the music supervisor I spoke to for this piece, what he realised is that the Beatles could, could only really work at the frantic pace that they worked at. They couldn't do it in a more leisurely way. And, it, and the wonderful thing about the film is it's yet another reminder that we like to flatter ourselves nowadays that pop music moves very, very quickly. Not the case at all. Pop music nowadays moves very, very slowly. If you want to see when it moved really quickly, watch the Beatles doing this. You know, they decide to go into a studio. They're going to make an album in a month. You know, nobody does anything like that anymore. <laughs> and that's They've, from scratch. They had nothing when they went abs- in. And and actually, John Lennon doesn't have an awful lot more than the nothing by the end of the month. It's, the amazing thing is Paul McCartney... And George Harrison are turning up daily saying, I've written a song. That's David Hepworth. You might not want to do all six hours, but I'm sure most people, most music fans will want to have a little look at that Mm. if they can. Now, an email from Susan on the subject of a Toby Jug. Now, this is because we discussed that rather nice film, Suitable for All. The Colour Room. The Colour Room, yeah. I love that film. That was about Clarice Cliff. Yes. Yeah, the ceramicist. Yeah. Yeah. It was very nice. And in the light of that very learned discussion we had about (laughs) uh, that film and indeed about Toby Jug, Susan has emailed us a photograph of her, Toby Jug. Uh, Not part of a collection, she claims, but a hideous (laughs) sample given to me by my husband's late great-uncle. 
That's mm. a very great uncle gift to give, yeah, I think. Yeah, he just wanted rid of it, didn't he? Yeah, and it might have looked a bit like him as well. Describe That's, it, please. It's truly ghastly. It's a very wrinkled old man um, giving a sort of weird squinty side eye and he's wearing um, a very fetching brown top hat. <laughs> Yes. Um, I mean, he's got, it looks like an old man with badly dyed hair. And to be fair, dyed hair is something I do know about. So uh, I'm prepared to <laughs> say that chap might have dyed hair. Anyway, um, I can't see the appeal of Toby Jugs. If you can, if you've got a favourite one that you'd like to share with the rest of us, podcast at radiotimes.com. Yeah, please put it on Insta as well, at Radio Times. Insta's the place, isn't it, really, for Toby Jugs? <laughs> Now it's time for What We Watched, always my favourite part of the show, because I get to grill you on what year I'm talking about with just a few teasing clips of TV. Your first clue is, in November of our mystery year, BBC One airs Ruby Wax meets the Duchess of York, which is already the most dated reference I can can think of. It's a one-off interview with Sarah, Duchess of York. She had divorced from Andrew in May of that year. Can I just show this? This is but so I, enchanting. Let me just show. She forgot what's in here, so she's written on a little piece of yellow paper. Small white t-shirts, small pink t-shirts. You couldn't open a drawer? What, are you too lazy to go over there and check? Do you winding me up, Ruby? I'm not. I'm saying, why would you need stickers? Because just when you're getting dressed in the morning, you've got about five seconds to get the children to breakfast before you burn the toast, Ruby. Yeah. I'm not going to open 15 million drawers and to find my grey T-shirt, so I labelled them all up That's so that it good. would be quick. Just yes. like us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just stick a T-shirt on. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake. I mean, she just got divorced from the Duke of York. Yeah. I mean, the, the end Endless rumours that they might remarry. I mean, can you think of a... I can't think of a less romantic reason to marry someone than the current predicament he finds himself in. Anyway. So the second clue is that in this year, Tony Blair was a guest on ITV's Des O'Connor Tonight, where he admits to trying to run away from school as a teenager by attempting to stow away on a flight to the Bahamas. Ladies and gentlemen, Des O'Connor. What a gorgeous reminder, though, of Des O'Connor tonight. <laughs> I, was, I never missed a show. Did you not? <laughs> the final clue is, in this year, Dolly the Sheep, famously named after everyone's favourite Dolly, Dolly Parton, yeah. was born. She was the first mammal to be cloned from an adult cell by associates of the Roslyn Institute in Scotland. And I had a millennium calendar when yeah. in funnily enough the in millennium, the millennium. Yeah. and it did a count a digital clock in the middle of it and it counted down and i remember very clearly dolly the sheep being on this calendar as a kind of what's been happening in our history the last hundred years and dolly the sheep was one oh well you've given me a massive clue there so it was before the 21st century it was her name is dolly seven months old she may not be the monster imagined in a science fiction fantasy Yet the cuddly Finn Dorset lamb may represent a major landmark in the history of genetic engineering. On an ordinary farm in Scotland, scientists say a clone was created from a single cell taken from the udder of a sheep. The embryo was then implanted in a surrogate, making an exact genetic copy of its so-called mother. Scientists hail it as a triumph for research in aging, medicine and genetics. Got a lovely bar, old Dolly, isn't she? Isn't she just? Yeah, she sounded in vigorous health there. <laughs> um, okay, because I've had that massive clue about it being in the last century. Mm-hmm. And Tony Blair. Now, why would Tony Blair be on Des O'Connor? He either wanted to be prime minister, or he was prime minister, and he needed to 
make himself seem real and approachable and the sort of chap who would run away from his private school in Scotland to try and stow away on a flight to Barbados. It's no fields of wheat, is it? No, no, it's not. (laughs) I'm going to say he already is Prime Minister, but he just needs to make himself more lovable. 1999. It's not. Do you want another clue? Go on. This was the year that Spice Girls released Wannabe. 94. 96? Yes, it was 96! Oh, yes, because I was. I was very nearly <laughs> a Spice Girl, and um, so that, that could have been me. Oh, 96, wow, I, gosh, another, so much history I've witnessed. I know. Right there. I, I really enjoyed your journalistic attempt, though, to think pre-Prime Minister or yeah. post-Prime Minister. And actually, I, I was right to assume that he was trying to make himself... Yes, you absolutely were. Before a man he was of elected. the people. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much. 1996. OK, if you'd like a breakdown of the listings of the programmes we've talked about today, uh, make sure you look at the episode notes wherever you get your podcast. Do follow and join us every week. We enjoy it, don't we? We do. We it's, love it. This, so we this is the you... highlight of my week. Uh, certainly the highlight of mine. Uh, the Radio Times podcast is produced by something else for... Immediate Media. Take care. See you soon. Bye.